Welcome everyone to Two Guys to the Dark Tower King, a podcast where we discuss the characters and connections in the ever-expanding universe that revolves around Stephen King's Dark Tower. I'm Jay Russo. And I'm Sean McGurr. You can email us at twoguysdarktower at gmail.com. To support the show, visit us at patreon.com slash twoguysdarktower. In this episode, we'll cover The Regulators, chapters one through four. Let's start the show. Spanning over about 25 minutes in the normally quiet suburban town of Wentworth, Ohio, the first four chapters of The Regulators introduces us to the many residents of Poplar Street via a paperboy on his route. When he gets to the end of the street, the paperboy is shot and killed by someone in a brightly colored van. Things escalate from there as two more vans appear and a couple of more people are killed. As the residents try to deal with this, some strange things are seen and heard. Jay, I'm coming to this book, The Regulators, in a virginal state, let's say. Okay. I know nothing about this book. I have not read it. But even with books I've not read, but are by an author I know and am interested in, I usually have like some idea of what it's about, even if it's at like a vague or high level. This is a book that I'm coming into it with no knowledge other than I know that it was published at the same time as another book and that there might be some Dark Tower related pieces to it. But really, I know nothing about this book. And so I'm coming into it and reading it and like, wait, what? What's going on here? What's happening? What should I be thinking about? And over the course of these first four chapters, what I thought was happening at the beginning and what I thought was happening towards the end of the first four chapters, I'm like, wait, wait, what is this book exactly? So fun for me. Yeah. It's nice that uh, here that it's keeping you on your toes, got you guessing still, and uh, interesting to think what how that progresses for you. Yeah. So let's get into it. We just finished up our coverage of the Bachman books, and we were like, okay, we're done with the Bachman books, but here we go, a found Richard Bachman book. And if you look at the book jacket and read a little bit in the prologue, you'll find out the history of how this book was found by Richard Bachman's wife. As, as a missing novel and, and, and published. So that was a fun little meta textual analysis. There's so much extra detail here going on that, that this fake Bachman has died. And now his widow is searching through his things and has found a whole handful of, of manuscripts in various states of completion. And King is writing this fiction about this fictional character and the work that this fictional character has has written and it's also kind of great in that it leaves the door open for king to write future bachman books which he does and and just basically just continue this theme yeah like it's another unfinished manuscript put out by the the, the widow bachman right so uh, i dig it yeah it works originally this was a screenplay that king was working on called the shotgunners ooh and it must have had that Western theme because he shared it with Sam Peckinpah, the famous director of movies such as Wild Bunch and Bring Me the Head of Alfredo Garcia. And Peckinpah actually gave King some notes on this before he died. Like I said, by the time I got to chapter four, I'm like, wait a minute, this isn't quite the Western that Sam Peckinpah would have been would have been uh, interested in doing unless he really was on some peyote or something. 
Yeah. What notes did Peckinpah give him? Yeah. Put the cowboys in uh like candy colored vans. <laughs> yeah. That's what you're missing. That's what you need. Oh, great, great notes there. Obviously not a screenplay, and I don't think that this has been a movie or a TV series or anything. So although the way it is written, it's very cinematic. So I could see how it might like these first four chapters could very well be the beginning of a mini series or a the first 20 minutes of a movie or something so yeah act one kind of thing right yeah exactly uh so this book was published on september 24th 1996 along with its mirror novel desperation by stephen king and that'll be the book we read next uh, some interesting things and i do remember this from going to the bookstore that the covers of the book make one image if you put them next mm -hmm. to each other and i do remember seeing that at the bookstore and Despite being a huge Stephen King fan, I never picked them up to look to see what they are about. It just, for whatever reason, didn't appeal to me. And that I understand that there's going to be characters who appear in both of these novels, uh, but maybe in slightly different situations. So that'll be something we track going forward. Well, in September of 1996, you were full speed ahead in graduate school and probably didn't have as much time as you otherwise might have to pick up a book for fun and leisure. I in 1996 was in my, I don't want to say how manyth year of undergrad school still <laughs> languishing in bad grades. So I had plenty of time to pick up both the regulators and desperation and read them. And I still own both of those hard copies and they're side by side on my shelf forming that nice image. Very cool. Now to give you some context of where this was in King's career, just prior to this, the Green Mile had been serialized, uh, so March through August of that year. And you'll remember that originally the Green Mile was published in, in six slight paperback uh, serial books. And I did pick up each one of those as they came out in those months. Uh, and that was mm -hmm. right before I he headed into grad school and they were short. So I, I picked up each one of those. Again, sort of boggles me that I never was interested in these. And then... The year after is when Wizard and Glass would be published. So after that long, long wait uh, between the wastelands, uh, here comes Wizard and Glass lately, which is probably why King's already thinking of some of that metatextual stuff with uh, Bachman earlier, maybe. It's already starting to play around in his head. Absolutely. Yeah, I also read the, the Green Mile books as soon as they came out. I, I remember how much fun it was to have that experience of that serialized thing. And that, like even King talked about how Dickens would do this and his fans would be clamoring for the next issue because it had the, the next chapter of his story. I, I felt exactly that way. It gave me that, that same thing. So, yeah, like you said, uh, you somehow found the time to read The Green Mile, but you were a little <laughs> too busy for Desperation and, and The Regulators. I was not. I, was, I think I was doing a. Uh, internship at the time of the green mile so anyhow let's get into the regulators because this is a a fun book and i've been making a point to try to read more on my kindle so i can control the font size as i'm getting older as we just talked about and <laughs> uh also um it's easier for me to take notes but this is one that jay as soon as i got it on the kindle i realized i probably should have a physical book as well because there are some interesting things that King is doing with the structure of this book and some of the interstitial pieces between chapters. Yeah, he's he's having a lot of fun here, I think. 
there are, even in these just first four chapters, and I'm guessing from my vague memory uh, of my first read that this will continue, is that there are these, it's collections of random things like postcards and newspaper clippings, letters. These are ways to tell the story and hop us in and out of the, the main narrative, but they're also a really efficient way to tell certain parts of the story. It's a way for King to just dump exposition on us and not have to put it in the mouth of a character. Yep. It's just like, here is literally a product description or a TV show summary of Motocop 2200. Do with that as you will, right? Yep. There's no, there's no way you can like have a character tell us all this information in a way that doesn't feel clunky. But here it is. It's just a thing. And I can skim it as I want or read every word of it carefully. But all that information is there for me. And maybe it'll matter. Maybe it won't. But it's there. Yeah, exactly. It's almost as if if you think that King was writing this as a screenplay, he wanted to keep the the narrative to this like very discrete time period of when the van shows up and 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 what's happening and I don't know what happens after this but like I'm assuming more happens but there's this backstory he has to tell and what better way to do it than here here's a letter or here's this and maybe if he was doing a movie he wouldn't bother with that cuz it might not be as relevant but here in the book he's got the the place to flesh it out so we get these this nice letter and the product description as you mentioned and there's even the map, which I wish I had when I started reading because I would have been taking notes like, okay, here's where here's where people are and here's where everyone mm -hmm. lives and who's next door neighbors and who's across the street. It, it's it's nifty uh, and uh, I, I dig it. If this had been made into a movie or if this had only been a screenplay and then turned into a movie, I could see these types of these artifacts being other types of artifacts that work in a movie like in robocop it cuts to a tv commercial right. or you know it's an ad for motocops 2200 that is fully made and so in that ad that only takes 30 seconds of the movie we see the characters we see the toys we see that and we can start making the connections that king wants us to make just like he does with this this product description yep that would be a lot of fun because you know that could end with i'll buy that for a dollar or whatever and <laughs> it'll be great this is him just taking the time to to play around with format and and really get a lot out of it. Yep. King's also playing around as he likes to do with just the way the narrative is told. So he moves from chapter to chapter, and even within chapter sometimes between this sort of present tense omniscient narrative where he's mm -hmm. talking in the here's what's happening in the here and now is the the paper boy's riding down the street and here he sees this and now he sees that and now he's going here and thinking about this. And then there's other points where he has more of that third person narrative, you know, the tendency, the, the, the godlike thing. And then we also get some close third person where he's in the head of some of the characters, like the woman who's driving home from having an affair. And we, we get, it's still third person, but we get it from her perspective, but he's playing around a lot with that. It, it's another way to give us information in a way that's not clunky uh, by allowing some of the characters to see it or the, the narrator to do it. And that first part, especially I think adds to the cinematic nature of it is we have, it's almost like this one long tracking shot of the paper boy yeah. driving down the street and, Oh, here's this person he's waving to. And there's the weird guy over here and here's this person and the alcoholic in the back and all, all this stuff. And it's, 
like that Goodfellas scene or something, you know, mm-hmm. one one long tracking shot. Uh, but then we we jump around as well. So it also adds to the immediacy of the novel as you get a sense like, oh, are these kids going to get shot? I don't know. It's happening in real time. Maybe they are. What's going to happen? Mm-hmm. It's good stuff. But that present tense is doing a lot of heavy lifting here. Mm. It adds to that immediacy. It adds to that, like, as you said, the present tense. A more traditional approach would have been to write this in the past tense, and that would give us that, that that would take away from that, that somebody somehow is telling us this story after it happened. So somebody survived it. Right. But that's not the case here. And it also feels like it's almost a throwback to the screenplay form that it began as. This is like, you know, scene description, scene description. You know, scene opens on town in Ohio. Camera pans in, close up on, you know, that type of thing. It's like that. So it feels like a screenplay in that sense. This is King literally setting the scene of the story by speaking to us, the reader, in present tense. And it does feel like we are as close to it as we possibly can be because we don't know that anything happens after this and we don't know what's going to happen next. Yeah. And I will say, you know, we're introduced to over a dozen characters, maybe up to 20 characters in these first few chapters. And King breaks two cardinal rules, I think. He introduces us to a character who is a kid and then has that kid killed. And mm-hmm. then shortly after the kid is killed, he has a dog killed. And these are two things that normally don't happen, kids and dogs dying. And it made me realize that there is probably no one in this book that is safe. When you're reading it, you don't think, oh, these kids are going to die. Mm -hmm. You're scared for them, but I don't think there's any point when you think all six of these kids are going to die. Maybe one of them will, but maybe they won't die when they're kids. And you especially don't think that in it because you get that, you know, alternate. Well, yeah, if you know a character is is an adult that they're going to live. But in this book, we're introduced to a kid. He's your good old all-American Ohio boy. He's a paper boy. Everyone seems to like him. He plays on the baseball team and oops, he's dead. And oh, look at this cute dog. It's dead too. Like at that point, I don't think that anyone is safe. And because it's present tense, I don't know if anyone's going to survive, period. So that really adds to the suspense of this book, I think. Yeah. So do you want to talk about the place? I mean, this is interesting for you and I, Jay, having both of us lived in central Ohio. Mm Mm-hmm. This takes place back on our old old stomping grounds. Yes. There's a random reference to the Columbus Dispatch here or there. And uh, I used to walk past the Columbus Dispatch headquarters every day on my way to work. And I could see the sign from just about everywhere I was walking. I would park my car like half a mile away from the office and walk the rest of the way. And the dispatch sign was up there and bold neon that you can see just about anywhere in Columbus. So that was kind of cool. So yeah, it was it was kind of cool to, you know, know that this town, this fictional Ohio town is just a few miles outside of Columbus where you and I lived for years of our lives. I got a, a nice chuckle out of the fact that even book introductions make jokes about flyover country that Bachman's widow is quoted in the uh, in the introduction to the book, that to the best of her knowledge, Bachman never traveled to Ohio, although he might have flown over it once or twice. <laughs> and 
<laughs> so I'm like, oh wow, this is really and this all this meta layers down. It's like, yeah, but it's a flyover state. Don't worry about it. I think it gives uh, King a little bit more carte blanche because there's a couple things I noticed, and I'm like, that's not really Ohio. Like Columbus, there's not a whole lot of Indians fans. There are more Reds fans than Columbus, and he talks about how everyone loves the Indians or listen to the Indians on the radio. And I was like, that eh, wasn't the case in Columbus, but you can write all those errors off because hey. Bachman's never been to Ohio. Why would he know the details of what things are like in Wentworth, Ohio? So mm-hmm. there you go. And you never know. Maybe this is a different version of Earth that hasn't a Wentworth, Ohio. In oh, there you go. Other worlds than these. I see what you're doing, man. Yeah. Yeah. I I love how King is trying to set up like this perfect mid-American town. You know, it's like summer in Wentworth, Ohio. Oh boy, can you dig it? Like that's mm-hmm wording at the beginning of chapter one is like so king right like it's just that conversational hey reader come come let me tell you a story it might say bachman on the cover but you know it's king for sure and to take that a little bit further about how this is like you know can you dig it king is setting the scene it's not just summer it's the apotheosis of summer. It's not just the Midwest. It's the quintessential Ohio suburb. It's not just a street. It's as though the street is the very balancing point of the United States. The, there's a line, the block runs north-south. Odd number houses on the Los Angeles side of the street, even numbered ones on the New York side. <laughs> like There's nothing else. It's just this street and in the middle between New York and LA. And that's it right? Yeah. This is King basically saying, don't worry about that. It's Ohio. Don't worry about any of the specifics. What I'm telling you is that this is the quintessential, typical, prototypical, whatever, American town, suburb. The rest of this is just insert place name here, right? And that's what matters. Yep. And and I'm giving you all this just so I can blow it all up. Yeah. Because look what I can do now. This is this mm-hmm. perfect street, everything's perfect, and I'm going to introduce some craziness. And we're not even going to spend enough time here, probably, for, for you to really think about anything beyond that. So speaking about uh, spending a lot of time here, what exactly is going on? Like I said, I'm coming into this book with fresh eyes, Jay, and I don't have any clue as to where the book's going. And so when I'm reading it, and this is not something I normally do, like. I'm always interested to know where the story's going, but I generally don't spend a lot of time thinking to myself, I wonder if this is going to happen, or I wonder if that's going to happen. Generally, I just let the author tell me the story, and I'm interested in what happens next, but I'm not actively making guesses about what's going going to happen next. But for whatever reason, in this book, I found myself thinking, all right, let me try to figure out what's going on. I almost approached it as if if it was some sort of, of mystery, right? Yeah. There's a lot of a lot going on and there's a lot of potential red herrings and a lot of intriguing bits as all these characters if not necessarily hiding secrets, they all have something in their path. They don't all. Most of them have something that is of interest to me and could potentially explain why there are vans coming into the neighborhood and shooting people. And then 
King adds on more stuff that makes me think, wait a minute, maybe this has nothing to do with any of these people here. Sure. Maybe there's something else going on because there's Confederate ghosts in these cars and the cars are are weird and the vans don't act like normal cars do. So, so yeah, I, I thought it'd be fun if you could share some of your your guesses and theories and predictions and I could react to them. And I will not reveal any spoilers about what comes next. I have some ideas about the, this book. I read it once when it was published and never, and it haven't since. So there's a lot that I've forgotten about this book. But if I know what is going to happen next, I'll just give you a moderately fascinating and we'll, we'll move on. Yeah. All right. So I'm intrigued by this fired cop. His name's Kali Entragian. Yeah, let's say fired cop Kali Entragian. And our first mention of him is by the paper boy. And the paper boy seems sort of scared of him because he's a little bit unpredictable and he's got a gun. But we meet him and we find out through his inner thoughts that he has been fired from his job, but he was set up. Somebody planted drugs on him. And so there is a case that maybe somebody's after him for some reason. But Kali seems to be a good guy. Like he comes rushing out as soon as he hears the gunshots and tries to take action and show some authority. And and but people don't have to treat him with any sort of authority because a he's walking around shirtless with shaving cream on his face and he's also not a cop anymore. So uh, they don't always take him seriously. But who knows? Maybe that's why the the vans are coming because of something Kali's done in his past. That's moderately fascinating. He might not be maybe our main protagonist, but he seems to be one of the ones up there so far based on where we're at. As a side note, it's really interesting that because we know Kali's thoughts, we know that he's innocent. Yes. We know more and are, and are far more sure about that fact than any of his neighbors. So he has an entire, he's surrounded by a neighborhood full of people who look at him like askance, right? Yes. And Whereas we can, we know exactly what he knows, and that is he didn't do anything wrong. We don't know why he's been framed and lost his job, but we know that he was framed. That changes our opinion of him. Absolutely. Absolutely. Because I would have been guessing, was he framed or is he a bad cop or not? So agreed. Whenever King has a character that is an author, that also perks my interest. And in this case, we have an author named Johnny Marinville who has written a very well-respected literary novel, but is now writing children's books. And there seems to be a reason for that in his past, and we don't know exactly what that is. People are a little bit confused by Johnny, because, hey, he's an author, and that's not a real job, but whatever, he, he does it. Uh, what's interesting about Johnny, in my opinion, Jay, is that he tries to make a phone call to... 911 or the police and he doesn't get through right away and in fact there's a weird voice that answers on the other side and says something about tack and i don't know who or what or where tack is but there's this tack that the guy says at the end of this conversation and tells johnny not to call but it's starting to seem perhaps beyond the realm of the ordinary let's say and not not necessarily just a mixed up phone line or a wrong number that he called. That's moderately fascinating <laughs> as well. Johnny Marinville, though, just to go back a, a, a tick, he's an interesting character because 
like King, he is an author, and like King, he's had a bit of success. King's had quite a bit of success. But also like King, he's a guitar player and uh, kind of um, semi, semi, uh, I don't want to call King a half-assed musician, but <laughs> I, I don't think that if King were, were uh, not already famous, I don't think anybody would want to listen to his music. Right. And I kind of feel like Johnny Marinville is an aspiring bluesgrass uh, player, and he's probably better a better guitarist than most people give him credit for, but hell, he's already got that author thing going for him. Right. But he's got to be good at this too. In fact, one of the neighbors makes a comment or thinks a comment very much along those lines. Yeah. Can't you just have one thing? (laughs) All right. Uh, One of the other characters that interested me was a man named Gary Soderson, who seems to be a alcoholic, which again, alcoholics in King's book, not uncommon. And um, he has an annoying wife who people think of as a word that rhymes with the type of football kick. And uh, we'll just leave it at that. Uh, Not a pleasant word. He's interesting because, again, he seems somewhat oblivious to what's happening because he's drunk, but also just doing his thing. And he and his wife have a, a very odd relationship. I don't know what part he plays, but he gets a lot of, for lack of better words, screen time in the in the book so far. So I don't have any theories on him yet. I just think he's a character to watch. I would say that um, King often does this, and a lot of authors do this, that they, they have a, a character in their story that's sort of their proxy, right? Mm. And in most of King's stories, he doesn't have that many main characters. So there's usually just one character who is the proxy. But this one has a whole array of characters. So I think he kind of spread out his biggest traits among these yeah. many people. There is one who is an author and another who's a drunk. So, yep. I mean, King is both of those things. Right. And, and Kali is a good guy, which I think King probably thinks he's a good guy, too, and would like to take control of situations. So maybe he sees a little bit of himself. In that. Like the heroic type. Yes. Right. And then finally, we don't meet this character. I think we maybe only vaguely see him behind the doors of a house. But it, there is a boy named Seth who is autistic, and he's living with his aunt, I believe, and who has adopted him. And we know most of this because of the supporting material we talked about earlier. There's a postcard from Seth's father that talks about Seth that he had sent to the aunt, and then the aunt writes a letter to one of her friends about Mm -hmm. her relationship with this boy. We also know that the boy, Seth, is interested in the motocops cartoon and toys and it seems as if there might be a relationship between those toys and the vans that are driving around all of that is of interest to me and i have a feeling that that might be some of the more important things the if i remember right the paper boy believes he sees the woman topless in the front door of her house as he's driving by with the paper where where the where the aunt and the and the boy live so um because they're a little bit hidden but mentioned in a couple different places i think they're important as well i'm interested to see where this goes because i think i've mentioned before i have a daughter with special needs and i 
wonder how King is going to address this, especially since this book was written 25 years ago. And so things might have been done in a different fashion. So I'm, I'm a little wondering where King's going with this. That is also moderately fascinating. There's a couple other characters, you know, there's the, the cool punk girl ish who's working at the convenience store. So she doesn't live on the street, but she's working at the convenience store down the street. Mm -hmm. There's the guy who also doesn't live on the street, but is in a U-Haul. Yeah. He's in the moving van, right? He's in a moving van. Like, yeah, all these characters seem sort of interesting as well. The twin teenage boys. Yep. There's the, the young sister and brother duo who we meet in the convenience store. Yep. And their parents. There's the African-American couple at the top of the street who everyone's happy because they're in the neighborhood. I think the it's the father who comes running down the street and he's like, I'm out of breath. I can't make it back up the hill. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So there's a lot of characters. You know, the woman who is having an affair and then ends up shot and killed. Lots happening here. And again, as I said earlier, I don't think any of them are safe. And I'm interested to see where this is going because I, I, I'm sort of at a loss because we're mentioning all these characters as if this is a normal street and it seems to be a normal street. But maybe we should have mentioned the fact that there are weird vans with odd electronics on their roof with windows that open strangely. And when you see inside, there are either ghosts or people with no faces and they're dressed as Confederates and they're shooting people randomly on the street or what seems to be randomly on the street. And that's not normal, Jay. That is not normal. And they're not even just dressed as Confederates. Some of them are dressed like cowboys and some of them are dressed like, I don't know, like G.I. Joe villains or something. Like, yeah. The, it's, a, it's a big mess of what is going on with these vans. And the vans have wings. You didn't mention that either. No. And like, they're all like primary colored, candy colored, as you mentioned earlier, mm -hmm. not normal colored vans that are ro roaming around. So yeah. What could have started out as, hey, why is this random shooting happening is more than just a random shooting because that's not just kids in a in a van shooting people. And maybe that's part of why King works so hard to set this stage, to put us to to create this setting. That this is a quote unquote normal town, right? This is the most normal you can be. And here's the most <laughs> strange thing I'm going, you know, and, and here I am introducing something strange that can't possibly work. It's so strange that it's almost like you don't know how to react to it. And if this were, I don't know, like a really big city and this happened, it would be a completely different story. If this were, I don't know, in the middle of the desert or in, in Antarctica or something. Again, <laughs> totally different story. But because this is this quote unquote quintessential Midwestern suburb, it is against that canvas that all of these things happen. And it makes, it makes the odd, the outrageous. Yeah, it's, it's a little different than Salem's Lot, which we talked about, where Salem's Lot seemed to have this dark underbelly. And while none of the characters on the street are necessarily perfect and they might have some things that aren't great, you don't get the sense that there's this evil that that's why the vampires came to Salem's Lot. Like, I don't think that there's like a, a natural evil that's happening here in all these characters. And that's why they're, the vans are drawn to the street. There seems to be something else. Mm -hmm. 
All very interesting. I am sort of like very excited to continue reading this to see where this goes. Excellent. But in the meantime, it's probably time to talk about some Dark Tower Thinnies because there's quite a few in these first few chapters. All right, let's do it. And uh, I suspect that there will be no shortage of Thinnies in this book. Do you want to start us, Jay? I would love to. Uh, the first thingy that I came across was that this town, or at least the amount of it that we are aware of, has only a few street names. But one of those street names is Bear Street. Mm. And my guess is that Bear Street aligns perfectly with the Shardic Maturin Beam. <laughs> what do you think about that? I dig it. I, I think that you might be right. And that is not the only Bear shardic reference uh a couple of the vans have a satellite dish on top that rotates and it reminded me of shardic himself with his yeah. little satellite dish on the top of his head and i wanted to tell collie the cop with his gun shoot the satellite yeah. shoot the satellite that'll work well, that's all you got to do you take out that little dish and the, the, everything else comes crashing down yeah roland would have known and you know what it crossed my mind on more than one occasion that if Roland had been present in this neighborhood, none of this would ever have happened. That's absolutely right. <laughs> he would have let his best friend Eddie die along the way, but nobody else would have been yeah. harmed. But, but for some reason, he would have gotten Eddie to fight naked. <laughs> <laughs> there you go. <laughs> for some reason. I actually quoted this line earlier, but King says that this is the apotheosis of summer. And that very much reminded me of when King described the desert. Mohane Desert, I believe it is called, as the apotheosis of all deserts mm. in the opening lines of the gunslinger. That's right. One of the characters says, I wasn't the only one that noticed he was a little off the beam either. We get another off the beam reference. And the fact that this has mm. now shown up twice in the last uh, few episodes, Jay, made me do a little bit of research. And it turns out that the off the beam was a somewhat common reference used by pilots in the early days of navigation because a lot of the navigation was done by radio beams. And so you were, if you were off the beam, your navigation wasn't quite right and you would be heading in the wrong direction. Um, and then it became th this other term, but it's not one that's used very often. And when it is used, it seems to be used by King. And because of the, the beam, I think it's worth pointing out when we encounter it. For sure. We don't have to make a fuss every time somebody says interloper, but my ears <laughs> perk up whenever I hear beam in a King book. Yeah, absolutely. So the, the final Dark Tower thingy that I tracked down was, we see that uh, one of the characters in the neighborhood, Peter Jackson, is not the director, <laughs> is uh, wearing a t-shirt that has what is described as a big yellow smile face on it that says, have a nice day. and. Uh, T-shirt reminded me a lot of the pin that, uh, or the button that Flag wears on his denim jacket in the stand. Absolutely, absolutely. I kept looking with all these characters. I said, for certain, somebody has to have the initials RF, but not yet. No comment. All right. I just wanted to point out that the epigraph for this book is Mr. We Deal in Lead, which is from The Magnificent Seven. Although I think King slightly butchers the line i don't think that's an exact quote mr we deal in lead 
It's very similar, but I'll, I'll put the YouTube link on Twitter or in, or in the show notes. But anyways, it is also used in Wolves of the Call as well. Mm-hmm. Just wanted to point out that connection. Yeah. And a great deal of the themes and the plot of Wolves of the Call are based on the Magnificent Seven. Yep. The fact that this this story is inspired by and quotes the Magnificent Seven. Yeah, that, that's there are a lot. There's a lot of connective tissue there. Well, we want to remind folks that you can support this show and get access to exclusive Patreon content, such as bonus podcast episodes, by becoming a patron. Visit patreon.com slash two guys dark tower to learn more. We've just started to look at some of the short stories in Skeleton Crew. So this is going to be a lot of fun because there's some great ones in there. And uh, if you're at a certain level, you get to vote and help us choose which stories to read. So and then listen to the bonus episodes. So come on and become a patron. Yes, and we'd like to thank our most recent patron, Keith E., who joined at the gunslinger level. So thank you, Keith. You deal in lead, Keith. We appreciate it. So, Sean, in addition to our wonderful, wonderful patrons, we got some excellent listener feedback recently. Ooh. This was a five-star review in iTunes from somebody who goes by the keen name of Keep Productions. The title of the review is Thoughtful, Engaging, and Darn Funny. And Keep Productions goes on to say, Too often when I delve into a pop culture topic, I get turned off by the fandom around them. I do not care for nerd culture at all. I hear you, man. Nerds. They're the worst. Nerds! Jay and Sean really seem to hit the sweet spot for me for taking a very measured and thoughtful look at the world of Stephen King. I love the format, I love the pace of the discussion, and I really love the knowledge and light humor they bring to the party. It's like a party here. I, it I, is. I gotta, I gotta hand it to Keep Productions. Playful snark plenty, but no hot takes to ruin the conversation. I'm probably a bit older than our esteemed hosts. I've been reading King since 81, and I really, truly appreciate the professionalism on display here. Well, that brings a little bit of a tear to my eye, Jay. That's a really nice review. It sure is. I think that might be the best review I've ever gotten. And I promise this was not from my mom. <laughs> Yeah, your mom doesn't listen to the podcast. (laughs) I've asked my mom to listen and she won't turn it on. Here's a hot take. That is the best review we've ever had. Yes, for sure. So so thank you, Keep Productions. It really means a lot to hear from you and to know that you appreciate all the hard work that we do put into the show. We take it seriously while we're having some fun. And we're glad that you and all of our listeners enjoy that. Tell your friends and family, and tell Jay's mom, listen to this podcast. Maybe you can convince her. (laughs) She doesn't listen to Jay anymore. (laughs) It sounds like we're heading into fun stuff, Jay. Let's go. All right. I thought it would be cool to call out the fact that the character named Mary Jackson is also the character who's thinking about Shirley Jackson. Mm Mm-hmm. And King loves referencing Shirley Jackson in general, and specifically the lottery. And that is exactly the story that Mary Jackson is pondering when she thinks about what would happen if my neighborhood found out about my affair? What would happen if the neighborhood found out that I'm not wearing underwear right now? 
Turns out it, it doesn't matter because she gets shot and killed. Exactly. <laughs> there are much more important things to worry about in life. On the other hand, she didn't get stoned like the character in uh, Shirley Jackson. Right. Stoned in the bad way. So she's got that going for her? Yeah, I suppose so. Which is nice. There's a discussion of a professor at the local college that teaches both Shakespeare and 20th century poet James Dickey. And I don't think that there is any professor at a college who would teach those two very distinct classes, one by a famous Renaissance playwright of the 16th century and the other of a 20th century poet and novelist. I just don't see that happening. That's not the way academics works, but nice try. Bachman, King, whoever you are. He's never been to Ohio. What does he know? <laughs> That's how they do it at the colleges in Ohio. <laughs> yeah, everybody just teaches everything. Yeah, you just teach all the, all the literature. So in the letter that Audrey writes to her friend, uh, she's reminiscing about the funerals of her family because they were all murdered, except for Seth. And she says they have speed bumps in the road that they call sleeping policemen. This is in Jamaica. And for some reason, that's how I started thinking of the coffins as sleeping policemen. And I just thought that that was a good, very evocative line of how this multi-person funeral must have been with all these lumps being prepared to be buried. And she thinks of them as these speed bumps. Mm. Yeah. And because there are so many of them, it's like, you don't even know where to direct your grief. Right. And and I'd never heard speed bumps called sleeping policemen before, but that's also just like a fantastic turn of phrase. Not original to King, obviously, but just mm -hmm. a great little turn of phrase. Yeah. It's like if a cop were standing there or parked on the side of the road, you'd probably slow down, right? Yeah. So the speed bump is doing the, the work of the cop. Yeah. Without so, any effort. So the cop can go take a nap. Exactly. King also uses a word when describing one of the apparent ghosts that is in the van. He calls it secesh, S-E-S-E-C-H. And that's a word that I had never read before, but I immediately got as short for secessionist. Mm. I hadn't ever thought of that, that you would call them, especially in Ohio, where you were on the Union side, that you would call the Confederates uh, the secesh. That's another nice little turn of phrase that King introduced me to, and I don't know where I'll be able to use that in everyday context, but if it ever comes up, I'm going to use it. Secesh. So the, the last thing that I have for fun stuff is I, I got a little chuckle because the young brother who we meet in the convenience store is basically just a little pain in the butt, right? <laughs> like, like, like he is awful to his sister. He seems to be awful to his parents, and he's just kind of unpleasant to be around. Not every little kid is like that, but this one is. Yep. And it seems that everyone in this neighborhood has the right idea about the little booger, except his parents. And there's a line, the boy who was sitting cross-legged and staring around with the imperious disdain of a pasha had always struck Gary at about a 9.5 on the old shithead meter. <laughs> Ding 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 ding. It's yes. just sort of see like the cartoon meter going up. Ah, uh -huh. nine point five. Absolute shithead, and he's <laughs> only a little kid. Yeah, that's fantastic. 
So my last one is Kali Antragian. When I first read his name, E-N-T-R-A-G-I-A-N, I thought of a demon from hell in the DC comic books whose name Etrigan, E-T-R-G-A-N. So uh, lots of the same letters, just in a slightly different order. And I know for a fact that King is probably aware of this DC comic character Etrigan as this demon because he appears in issues of The Sandman by Neil Gaiman, who, and I know King has read that. And Etrigan is an interesting character because even though he's a demon from hell, he has violent tendencies, but he usually allies himself with the forces of good. And the other interesting thing about Etrigan is he speaks in rhyming couplets. So uh, <laughs> it's a lot of work for the writers to make sure that all of his, his dialogue uh, rhymes. But he's a fun little character. Is he like Fezzik the giant in A Princess Bride? Does anybody want the peanut? <laughs> Stop that rhyming. I mean it. Yeah. So he, I don't know if there's any connection or if there's going to be any connection between Kali and Trajan and the demon Etrigan, but if it would be really fun stuff if it was. That's moderately fascinating. All right. Well, uh, excited about this book and looking forward to the rest of it. And that's going to be all for this episode of Two Guys to the Dark Tower Came. Thanks, Jay. Thank you. Links to all of our social media is available in the show notes. If you like the show, please rate us on Apple Podcasts. To support the show, visit patreon.com slash twoguysdarktower. Next episode, join us as we cover The Regulators, chapters 5 through 7. For Jay Russo, I'm Sean McGurr. Thanks for listening. All right, I mean, I, I'm going to go do something about the cat. Either uh, feed her or murder her or let her out. <laughs> All uh, equally good options. Sean is now dealing with the cat. Even though she was fed just 20 minutes ago, she's already crying. Fun fact, I've never seen the Green Mile movie. That is uh, that's not fun. That breaks my heart a little bit.